Welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Gavin. Hello, Gavin. Oh, we got it. We got an accent. It's uh, yeah, I, I wasn't sure where it was going. It ended started one way, ended another. Yep. Pretty much uh to your your good old kind of Aussie accent. Yeah. More or less. More or less. Yeah. How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. It's uh here we are. We're recording back at our old time on Saturday afternoon. Uh I like it. Definitely a bit tired. Uh right now I'm in fight camp, so I'm just training really hard, two a days every day. So I literally just did my last workout for the week. Uh, you know, a five K run outside, finished with a bunch of Tabata uh sprint work in the garage. So I feel good, just a, a little tired. I got myself some some decaf coffee because I've pretty much cut out all afternoon caffeine so a little bit of decaf so i mean technically there's a little bit of caffeine in there i got some uh, liquids so you'll you'll see me drinking some waters and some green juice uh and then hopefully after this i'll go eat, eat a nice big dinner somewhere oh very nice yeah hawaiian you know that's what i'm leaning towards simply because <laughs> we're uh, we have to go make a return an amazon prime return to whole foods and we don't usually go to that side of town uh and L and L Hawaiian barbecue is right down the street from where we'll be. Now, normally here in the Fresno area, we always go to Ono. Uh, but I went to L and L a couple months ago when I was in Modesto, and I was very impressed by the serving size and you know just the heartiness. So maybe we'll give that a shot tonight, or maybe we'll just get some food at Whole Foods. You know, they have amazing hot food. Problem is, like at a buffet, I have very poor self control when it comes to portion sizes. So, you know, and just like at Lassen's, whenever I used to go get hot food at Lassen's, it'd be delicious. Uh, this is in LA. Uh, and it's like a much smaller scale Whole Foods, kind of almost even fancier or, you know, uh, more organic and natural. But anywho, same thing. I, I'd get a, a big old box of hot food and they'd weigh it and then it'd be like $30 and I'd eat the whole thing <laughs> in one sitting. And I'm like, oh my God, AJ. So that's the, the one issue, but we'll yeah. see. Who knows what happens? Maybe we'll go somewhere else. I went to a grocery store once where uh, buffet style, they had the chicken chicken wings or something, okay. chicken legs, and the person was just peeling the meat off of the leg and putting the uh, the bone back in the thing. Oh. And I was like, uh, I looked at them and they're like, I'm not going to be eating it, so why should I pay for it? That's uh, kind of sketch. That's, it is, yeah. Uh, I, I would say so. It's also probably unhygienic. Oh, definitely unhygienic. But like just even having that mindset, I feel a sketch, well, I'm not going to be eating it. Well, that's part of the, the chicken that you're buying. I mean, And okay. that's, that's, that's why other, yeah. yeah. Anyway. You know, there's, there's people like that in the world. But uh, otherwise, yeah, I'm great. I'm good. Same old, same old. Uh, how are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, I have, in theory, a couple of movies to watch coming up in the next few days. Starting tonight. I did go ahead and buy a ticket to the midnight screening Street Fighter, which explains why my ca coffee is not decaffeinated. Oh, you know what's funny uh, is this morning, and I thought of you because of this. Mm -hmm. uh, so on Saturday mornings, when Jessica and I are both here, you know, off work and stuff, and uh, I decided normally the my, way my Saturday works is I'll train first thing in the morning, and as soon as I'm done with my workout, we go straight to hot yoga, and then I'm done for the day. But because I'm training at night again now at the Muay Thai gym, you know, in fight camp, I decided to sleep in this morning. So we both slept in, woke up, you know, hot yoga wasn't until 1030. So we had a couple hours to kill, 
drinking our coffee. And so uh, that's the time where I'll put on like a random TV show. And she actually enjoys watching Walker, Texas Ranger and or martial law in the mornings like that. Now, if I'm like all day long, let's watch Walker, then no. But she kind of likes just the, you know, we could just put it on as background noise. She likes a lot of the episodes. So the episode this morning for martial law was, uh, I forget the exact name of it, but the one where you were a technical advisor on. Oh, uh, where Samo crosses over. No, the Yakuza one. Oh, the, yeah. I was thinking Walker. Yes. Yes. Funny uh, you should say that. Be, I was and, just talking about that episode yesterday with, uh, with Emily. So for people that don't know, Gavin worked on season two of Martial Law, uh, starting off kind of just as a PA, right? But then yeah. there's one particular episode that co-stars Byron Mann. Also, probably most famously known for playing Ryu in the Street Fighter movie. He's a Hong Kong actor, very talented, fantastic actor. He's done some great B movies, some A movies. He actually has a brand new movie that just came out. I saw it. It's a DTV direct-to-video film. Uh, so maybe once we get the chance to watch that, we can talk about it. But he co-stars in this episode uh, as what ends up being a con man that's mistaken for the world's greatest assassin. And he's supposedly this Japanese... Uh, world-class killer and the episode also co-stars heavy d and so heavy Heavy d D has to deliver some lines in japanese and because gavin grew up in japan and speaks japanese and the crew had figured that out you had to teach him how to speak his lines correct yeah exactly they um but this is a little bit of a double flashback because, you know, obviously last week we spoke about uh, Supercop, right. Stanley Tong directed film. This was a Stanley Tong directed episode. That it was. And uh, so it was, I, it, I was- We didn't even bring that up that you've technically met Stanley Tong. I, I, I technically spoke to Stanley yeah. Tong. Yeah. Yeah, no. So, but uh, the, the st- I was leaving downtown LA and I, I was this uh, like Friday- and I looked up at the hotels and I remembered, oh, that's where we shot the Sam Hong episode, the ah. martial law episode. And, and there's one scene where uh, the guys propel off of the roof. And, you know, Stanley Tong is telling them, okay, you're going to say, let's go when they jump off the roof. Or Jeff, Jeff Caliente, who was the stunt coordinator, the, but not for the fights, but the right. stunts coordinator for the show. And so Stanley Tong was there and I was like, Mr. Tong, do you want them to say that in Japanese? And he thought for a minute and goes, no, it's okay. English, okay. Go for it. And so they just, because I think, you know, it doesn't even make the episode, right. but it was, I had, that was my little interaction with him. But they, like the, my, my first boss out of college, Herb Edelman, the unit production manager, was the cool, like the be- one of the best bosses I've ever had. And he was like, Gavin, I know you like, you know, Samo. So he sent me out to his house, deliver the script. But so with this episode, he's like, just go to the set and help people speak their lines in Japanese, particularly Heavy D, but also the other actors. Uh, so I just, every scene that they're shooting that has a Japanese character, I got to stand right behind the camera. It was a lot of fun. But, but obviously yes. you didn't need to help uh, Tsuyoshi Abe, right? No. Who? They, they, sent, they sent me to all the trailers to see if anybody needed help <laughs> did, did they send you to his trailer yes they did <laughs> so for people that don't know uh and am i saying his name correctly uh, yes yeah so tioshi abe is uh one of the he's a very famous martial artist he did a lot of stunts in the 90s and he's from the inosano academy uh lineage so he's a jeet kundo instructor and my years when i moved back to la in 2016 
I was, you know, I started training full time with Sugarfoot, but I would still train part time at the Inasano Academy to train with Kathy Long. And then on the occasional occurrence that Sugarfoot was out of town, whether as he was going back to Canada for a couple of weeks or whatever, I'd go get like, if I, it, it was a little bit difficult to, because, well, actually, no, technically, I think like the membership I would pay for was the once or twice a week. So I'd mm-hmm. be able to sneak in there a second time. And there was one time where he was filling in because one of their instructors was out. So I got to train with him for about two weeks. Uh, and the funny part is before class, he, you know, would put on music and he put on the Wheels on Meal soundtrack, aka the Spartan X soundtrack. <laughs> and I look up and I'm like, after like two beats, the jump. I was like, is this the Wheels on Meal soundtrack? And he turns around. And he's like, who said that? I was like, me? He's like, how did you know that so quickly? And I was like, I like these kind of movies. So he and I got to talking. But long story short, he's from Japan. You know, yeah, there, he speaks there, fluent. Obviously, it's his first language. Yeah, there were two actors, uh, as I recall, who were Japanese. and But they're like, just go to this trailer. Make sure they, he knows what he's saying. Make sure he knows the lines. Run them with them. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like yeah. knocking. And I'm like, hello, do you need help with your lines? And But uh, one of the other uh, actors was... Uh, an elderly gentleman. And he's like, no, I don't, but why don't you come on in? And we had a nice conversation oh, nice. about filmmaking and everything. So it, yeah, it was, it was a great, like great week. Uh, and you know, um, yeah, heavy D getting him to say his line when the camera wasn't rolling, it was perfect. Yeah. When the camera's <laughs> rolling. He, he, uh, let's just say he heavy D defied it. So oh, essentially well. he's supposed to say, welcome to right. Japan. Or welcome to America or yeah. Los Angeles. And of course, maybe that's the language corner of the day. Uh, we can redo this at the end, but it's Yokoso America. Welcome to America. And may he rest in peace. Yes. But well, Japanese was not one of his strong points. Well, he knew what he he understood. He's like, I got it. I got it. I'm like, okay, yeah. great. And they, the director wanted me to stand right behind the camera. So I'm like doing the hand signals for how like it's supposed to go. You know, Yokoso America. So he's like, he's perfect. He's perfect. And then the camera rolls and he goes, yo. Coso America. Like, okay. I know I'm not gonna change that and I don't want to. But the director's like, did he say it right? I'm like, eh, not really, but it's okay. And they're like, coach him again. So I'm like coaching him and he's like, I got it, I got it. Well, the final take is he doesn't really do it that way, right? I think they ended up using I don't one remember where, the final take. So I think so maybe the final they actually take- maybe they were actually recording when they weren't supposed to be recording. Oh, okay, because I think the final take it's much more I don't remember being, yo, it was kind of he said it pretty Okay. Yeah. It, I have to go back and watch that uh, episode because, uh, yeah, I just remember him every time they, you know, said, said action. He was, it was, yo, Kosa. And I, I loved it. I wish that if, if they actually didn't go that route, I'm sorry, because it was, it was awesome the well, way he was doing it. That was a great little tangent we went down. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed the midnight screening. Uh, you'll have to yes. tell me all about it next week. But for martial arts movie news, the one bit we have is next week, Gavin and I will be attending uh american cinema cinematex beyond fest mm-hmm. that is correct because next friday night at the los felice theater we've been there before but it's been many years for me so the uh neon theater at los felice three beyond fest we will be finally getting the chance to see enter the clones of bruce so this is the fantastic bruce lee documentary that uh is directed by david gregory but is the longtime project produced by really driven by uh michael worth kung fu movie actor martial artist director writer producer filmmaker podcaster extraordinaire as well as our good buddy frank jang uh frank unfortunately will not be able to make it i was just talking to him the other night 
but Gavin and I will be there. So I really hope everyone uh, attends. The tickets go on sale the morning of, so it's next Friday at 9 a.m. But the screening will be next Friday night at 10 p.m. And I've heard nothing but good things about this documentary uh, from all perspectives, people that are fans of the genre, people that are just fans of documentaries. It opened up at Tribeca Film Festival to uh, great acclaim you could say and it's been playing at festivals all over the world i think it's playing in taiwan right now at the i believe it's the kaohsiung film festival i'm not sure if it's kaohsiung or taipei uh but really it's been getting a lot of traction and the only question i have is which shirt i'm going to wear <laughs> to this so i have a couple i have one very specific bruceploitation shirt then i have kind of a second nicer one that's quasi bruceploitation so I don't know. I don't know. It'll be up in the air. I'm curious to know what quasi Bruce exploitation is, unless it's like Enter the Fat Dragon. No, that would be that would be straight up Bruce exploitation. But uh, you'll okay. you'll just have to wait and see. Maybe I'll wear that one simply because okay. I've already worn my straight up Bruce exploitation one to a Bruce exploitation screening that Michael Worth was at, and we took a picture together. So maybe I'll mix it up. But otherwise, uh, everybody in the LA area try to make that screening because I guarantee you that documentary is going to be amazing. Well, but I'm looking anywho, forward to it. Yeah, so uncharacteristically, Gavin does not have a movie quote for me today. I tried to I tried to find a quote that relates to the film. And as as audience members will understand our take of the film, it's a little disjointed. Yes, and therefore, yes. it was hard to find a quote that alluded to the film um, in the way that uh, I like to have them do. So my so thoughts were disjointed. You, you could have picked pretty much any of the one-liners that Arnold Schwarzenegger delivers in Batman and Robin. <laughs> Chill out. Uh, this is or true. something along those lines. So on that note, the film we are talking about today is the 1989 Hong Kong martial arts fantasy Film, Iceman Cometh, uh, starring the one and only Yuen Biao, co-starring Maggie Chung, as well as Yuen Hua as the antagonist, and directed by Clarence Falk. So, this is interesting. This is uh, the first movie we've reviewed in a while that isn't, as I say, an all-time classic, in my opinion, that's not one of like our all-time favorite films. It's a movie that has so many great aspects to it, but also falls a little short in other spots. It's a film that I saw a long time ago when I first saw it, but haven't really watched it that much. So having picked up one of the new remastered versions, we both have the Vinegar Syndrome uh, Blu-ray. Uh, it was my first time watching it in probably almost 20 years. And there's parts of it that there's certain elements to this film that make it worth watching right out the gate worth the mm -hmm. price of admission alone as i love to say like so really the finale is fantastic as you'd expect with these different uh cast members and people behind the scenes uh, uh mostly talk about the action which was nominated for a hong kong film award if i'm not mistaken so the title has nothing to do with the the more famous novel in fact one of the alternate english titles was the time warriors which that on the blu-ray it actually has this uh trailer the english language trailer which has that and i think that would have been a much more appropriate title i i feel like it was kind of a 
almost like a cash grab trying to call it Iceman Cometh. But let's get to discuss discussing this film. So for you, when was the first time you saw the Iceman Cometh, the 1989 Colton uh, Harvest film? It has to be in the 1990s. It was a rental. So I saw it on VHS tape in Cantonese okay. with Japanese subtitles. Oh. So that's why I there were a lot of story elements this time around that I didn't catch catch on to as a as as a young adult because right. I couldn't understand. Now, a real lot quick of these. for for audience members, I always forget with you and your sister who grew up in Japan. We're talking about your older sister. One of you's better at reading than the other. Was it you? That's the better. No, 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 I'm better at everything. <laughs> no, uh, if, if Deidre is listening to this. Uh, uh, it's going to be a test. So no, yeah. I would say that Deidre is better at just honestly almost about everything, particularly her communication skills. She can communicate with right. There, there, there are different layers of Japanese. I might have a slight edge with reading. That's what I, thought I did you at would one say. point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, obviously, you would have a basic understanding of. I'd say better than basic, but to keep up with subtitles and a uh, kind of a complex film like this especially if not uh, not even knowing necessarily i'd imagine the can't because i ended up watching the cantonese version which i'll get to but they may have been mixing in old cantonese with mm -hmm. newer cantonese mm -hmm. which therefore the subtitling would have been kind of all over the place so i can totally get how you may have been a little lost upon your first viewing well yeah yeah they're, they're it, it's funny because my first viewing usually when i uh, would rent a, a video from um Popeye video store in uh in Hiroshima we I would watch the film two or three times the first time uh I would just kind of it would just be on watching with kind of glancing at the subtitles this then the second time around once I understood what the ending was go back and watch read the subtitles and try to learn and actually you know basically I'm reading subtitles glancing up every now and then and the third watching is I understand it all so I'd watch it all so when I tell you I've only watched it once I've only had one viewing experience before prepping for this podcast, it means I watched it three times on VHS over like a two-day time period. Uh, and there are elements from this film, as, as you pointed out, that I remember so distinctly because there are some phenomenal performances and mm -hmm. action and comedy. And then the rest of it, just absolutely a fog. And then we were when we're re, you know, and we had texted a little bit about this, but rewatching it, it uh, it was a different, slightly different film. But then those same things that stuck out in the past still stuck out, and they were yes. like pins in my memory. What about you? What 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 was the first time you watched? You said about twenty years. Yeah, so I definitely picked this one up in high school. I think this was uh, so not freshman year. So my really my first trip ever to Chinatown. San Francisco was summer of 2001, right before I started high school. I went with my mom and a friend of hers. So it was my first, I got to go to Chinatown. And this is back when they still had all sorts of shops would sell DVDs and VHS. But there was like two major ones, but one in particular that just had all the classics. And little did I know back then that some of those DVDs now go for eBay for like a hundred bucks. But uh, it wasn't that trip. But every year, for uh, I once again, I was in the IB program in high school for IB English. Usually, each semester we would take, or maybe it was once a year, we'd take a trip to go see like uh, a play uh, in San Francisco. And so we'd have the whole day to do whatever we wanted. 
pretty much until the play, which was usually in the afternoon. So typically we'd get there by mid morning, have like three or four hours to kill, then go see a play. Now I would always, everybody knew AJ was going to Chinatown. So anybody wanted to go to Chinatown was part of my crew. And I picked this up at one of the later trips, maybe sophomore, junior high schools. We're talking 2002, three, four, maybe around there. Because I'm pretty sure I remember going to the, I I don't remember the exact location. The store is no longer there. But I remember the layout of it still. And I remember, I'm pretty sure this was the same trip I picked up Skinny Tiger Fatty Dragon, one of my all-time favorites. And I remember, because once again, I I was on a very tight budget. I, I didn't... You know, this was just birthday and Christmas money I'd save mm-hmm. up. I, I didn't have an allowance. I didn't get money for good grades. It's so funny. I'd have friends that get like $25 for an A. They're like, you don't get money for A's? I was like, no, I just get in trouble if I don't get A's. Uh, but, you know, so I didn't have a ton of money to spend, right? I had a summer job every summer working for my dad. So that money went just back to college or whatever. And then I'd occasionally get a 20 bucks here and there, usually for a trip like this, you know, my parents would maybe give me like, okay, here's 20, 30, maybe even 50 bucks if I was lucky. So that would all go towards these DVDs. So I remember grabbing a few and I remember being down to the choice of pretty much, I remember Rosa. I had a copy of Rosa in my hands, but I decided to get something else. And I'm pretty sure I picked this one instead, the Iceman Cummins. And, and Rosa is also with Yun Biao. Yun Biao, that is correct, yeah. yeah. And uh, another great one that I, w- I wish was easier to get a hold of. Hopefully, that'll be one of these ones that gets remastered soon. But yeah, so I remember watching it, enjoying it, but not really loving it, which sometimes had to do with the copy I had. As I said in the past, my first copy of Warriors 2, I picked up in Chinatown at that same store, but on VCD. And so the quality mm-hmm. was way less. And, you know, you have to halfway through switch out the VCDs. It was always two of them. And so it just didn't really stick with me. It wasn't until I got to see it in a much better version years later that I absolutely fell in love with it. This one was just one of those ones. I enjoyed it. Didn't love it. Uh, there are certain elements, like you said, that stuck in my mind, like the finale. And yeah, there's, there's a lot to appreciate about this film. But upon this most recent viewing... And uh, I think we share the same sentiment. It's a bit disjointed there. Mm-hmm. I feel like it fell short in certain spots that it could have done more with. Uh, it, it fell short with cert- as good as it is with certain character development and all the performances being great. I feel like we, we could have explored a little bit more with some of our, our characters. And it- I, I think I wanted just the, the action that we get is phenomenal, but I feel like we needed a bigger middle action set piece to yes, balance out it, the picture. It, it's very it's very interesting because it's hard to take this film apart because it it almost the running time, it seems like everything's filled properly. Mm-hmm. It's some of, in my opinion, the best fish out of water comedy elements that you'll see there there that first night where he's uh where, where Yun Biao who's, you know, I, I guess we'll get into the plot in in, in a moment, but uh the the fish out of water comedy works very well. Uh, and the action sequences are phenomenal. Yes. And it's, I think the action sequences in particular are so good and there's so much in them that it makes you feel like the rest of the film didn't necessarily live up. And it's a shame because 
you know, they're, they're, these two obviously have worked together before, Yunbi Yunhua, and they've had some great fight sequences, but this is one of their most extended fights, essentially. Right. Like, they have like three or four fights throughout the film, if I ever, or maybe just two, two, pretty much two, fight. two yeah. big fights. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, they're so wonderful that it seems like it would have been okay to maybe take those fights and put them, uh, in another film like On the Run or Rosa or or uh, The Kid from Tibet, you know, uh, these other films that they worked on together or at least one of them was in. But with that said, uh, how do we describe this plot? And I mean, it's like essentially there's a lot of there isn't a lot of adult content, but there is some I guess you would say you would have trigger warnings before this film right. were shown today. So there's definitely some uh, sexually exploitive content in it. And so let's get into the plot. And uh, I've got the the names all pulled up and so forth. So pretty much uh, it starts off in the Ming Dynasty, 16th century China. We've got uh, Yuan Biao plays like the head of security pretty much for uh, the emperor more or less. Uh, and uh, so he plays a character named uh, Feng Xiaoqing. Um, um, in the Mandarin version would have been uh, Feng Shoujong. But he is pretty much chasing his former comrade, Feng San, played by Yuan Hua, who has, after this strict upbringing in which they're, you know, were forced to learn martial arts and everything else and be loyal to the emperor and this and that, he's now broken loose and become a serial rapist and uh, murderer. So he's a serial killer, rapist, uh, and the emperor is going to pretty much execute Yuan Biao's character for letting his kind of classmate slash subordinate slash whatever on the loose like this, but instead gives him the chance, gives him like 20 days to catch him. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the process of doing so, he, Yuan Biao's character, Feng Xiaoqing, goes to uh, their mutual master and discovers that uh, Yuan Hua's character, Feng Sun, has stolen pretty much a device that will help him travel through time because he knows that he's got too much heat on him. He won't be able to escape. So he's going to try to escape to a different century. And, and it's, it's like, it's the, the device is sort of like a key that unlocks this Buddhist reincarnation uh, tool, but you're not being reincarnated. You're just being sent to a future time. And I think right. in this instance, it was 300 or 600 years. So it ends up being 300 years. Okay. So uh, I think is what they say. So uh, UNB out tracks him down. They have a battle. So this is their first fight scene. Uh, and obviously it's set in the Ming Dynasty. So it's, it's done in traditional swordsmanship. But the cool part is these are like big classical swords. So they actually, it's like two-handed type sword style. In the behind the scenes, UN Wall was actually talking about how they couldn't do like a single-handed style sword because these things were so heavy. And so, and they had like sparks hooked up to them, you know, because there's clink, clink. So they have a great fight, but also they're, it's technically limited in some aspects, which we will get to. But uh, they have this battle and in the process, they end up falling off a mountain and traveling through time, or they travel through time first they they are yes so this uh, that, is where that the, the plot gets a little well this is where it's a little kind of silly so they they travel through time 
Then and then and then yeah. Yuan Biao ends up tackling Yuan Hua off of a mountainside in which they fall and get frozen. Now, the whole idea of the film and what I remembered as a kid was they just fell off the mountain. There was no time travel. They fell off the mountain, yes. got frozen, and then were discovered by scientists in China 300 years later. That's but exactly upon, how I remembered it as right, well. Right. But upon rewatching it, you realize, no, technically they traveled through time first, then fell off the mountain, then froze, and then I guess were found shortly thereafter by the scientists. So maybe that's how they survived, and that's the whole point. But otherwise... It's a little kind of, there's, that's a, like, you know, a little bit of a plot hole element. It's like, wait, so they traveled through time, then fell off the mountain, then got frozen, mm -hmm. and then are, are found right after that by scientists in China. So either which way, that's the, the setup. They're now in modern times found by China, uh, scientists in mainland China who decide they want to take the bodies to America to get them dethawed properly because they think they can resurrect these bodies. But really, the scientists are just trying to find a way to escape China. Kind of a very pre-1997 uh, Hong Kong plot-style element uh, that, you know, once again, it has to do with this fear of the upcoming handover to mainland China, etc. Mm -hmm. So in the process, they decide that the scientists decide, hey, let's stop in Hong Kong first, though, so we can have some party time. They stop in Hong Kong. Uh, the, a group of thieves decide to break into this warehouse thinking they're going to find goods, end up finding the bodies instead, accidentally unplug them from their cryo chambers and run away. And then both our protagonists and our antagonists are now dethawed in modern day Hong Kong and have no idea what's going on. So really from that point, we don't even unfortunately get to see Yuan Hua's character for quite a while until he's already established as a now modern day criminal. It instead, <laughs> focus, yeah. it instead focuses on Yuan Biao's character, Feng Xiaoqing, who shortly thereafterwards encounters a character named Polly who is played by Maggie Chung fantastically and her performance has gotten a lot of praise and rightfully so. And it was around this point in the film, I switched from the classic English dub, even though as most people know, I love the classic English dubs. I didn't grow up watching the classic English dub though. My DVD from Chinatown was uh, a Tai Seng release that didn't have that. So, uh, but I also felt like the classic English dub, this is one of those rare cases. It wasn't doing the film justice. So I switched mm -hmm. over to Cantonese. Like this would be, you know, 12 minutes into the movie. Uh, because really, even their first interaction when UNBO ends up saving Maggie Chung, uh, the, the humor was getting lost in the English dub. So I switched to Cantonese. So pretty much she is a con woman. She is a what she calls a model, but really is a, a, a prostitute that never follows through with the actual deed. She always finds she's a grifter, right? And so she ends up also conning Yuan Biao, who she thinks is just crazy and kind of stupid, into being her manservant and uh, helping her con all these clients or Johns, I guess. You know, so right before the deed has to be done, he'll come in and rescue her. And yeah, so and she at the same time, though, he starts to learn about modern day life and modern day Hong Kong as he becomes her manservant. Uh, and then finally, after a bit of this, this is where a lot of the humor and, you know, this this kind of love story develops, but not really as thoroughly as I would have liked it. Then finally, after like 30 minutes of this, suddenly Ewan Waugh's character comes back into the picture and we find he is now a slick, super stylish 80s criminal wow. in Hong and Kong. He So here, here's while 
Yoon Bial is slowly getting to know the times and he's reflecting on the times and, and how sad the state of life is. So it, at points, it there's so many, it's not just disjointed from like how the script is built, but also how, uh, is this a moral tale about the future? Is it just a fun ride? I think obviously, you know, a lot of this might fall down on the script. A lot of it might come down to there might be shooting at different times. Uh, maybe the director didn't have like, have necessarily the chops that Samuel Hung would have with a film like this. But uh, while we're getting that, Yoon Yoon Wah's character has not only learned to adapt, he's learned to be the apex predator in Hong Kong. And he also speaks English now. Well, he speaks, yeah, he speaks a little bit, yeah. okay, I, baby, and like yeah, well, stuff like that. Yeah, like, still, yeah, thank you, no problem. Like, hi. He, hi, yeah, and not only, so pretty much when we're reintroduced to him, he's now uh, super stylish. I love it. He's got a, not a jerry curl, more like a soul glow, as I call it, like uh, kind of, so kind of like a jerry curl, and he's become the main henchman for a low-level like Hong Kong crime boss. Uh, that doesn't last long because his his serial killer slash sexual predator instincts kick back in again. He decides to sexually assault the mob boss's girlfriend. And when the mob boss finds him in the act and decides he's going to take him out, well, it's not so easy because, you know, Yuan Wah's character is this highly trained ultra killer, ends up killing both of them and becoming the new crime boss, more or less. And it's when he now is suddenly becoming this sexual predator again that these crimes catch the attention of Yuan Wah's character who realizes, wait a minute, excuse me, Yuan Biao's character who realizes, wait a minute, uh, my nemesis, Yuan Wah, the Feng San character, could this be the work of Feng San? Could he have been resurrected too? Sure enough, uh, he was. And because Maggie Chung's character, Polly, is this con artist prostitute, she ends up becoming, you know, uh, involved inadvertently with the villainous Feng San character when he hires her as a prostitute. But at the same time, this is when Yuan Biao's character discovers finally he's been exploited by her and he doesn't go to save her this time, even though it's the one time he should have. That's And then suddenly they all put it together at the same time. So Yuan Wah's character kidnaps the Maggie Chung character, holds her hostage, and then this is when the finale sort of begins between uh, Yuan Biao's character, Yuan Wah's character, Maggie Chung's character. Long story short, Yuan Biao's able to rescue her this first time, but then they discover that in two months' time, the Buddha that initially helped them travel through time will be on display at a museum in Hong Kong. And so Yuan Wah's character has decided he is going to travel back to the Ming dynasty with modern day guns and weaponry so that he can take over, take down the emperor and, you know, change history. So Yuan Biao's character, uh, he, he, he becomes he, a little Ron Silverish from Time Cop. There you go. <laughs> exactly. And then so Yuan Biao's character has to uh, train for two months, build himself a new sword in order to uh, stop him from carrying out his plan, yet at the same time, bring him back. He does plan to travel back in time and bring back uh, the Yuan Hua villainous Feng San character to the emperor. And so that is the plot in a nutshell. I tried to break it down 
as fast and as thoroughly as I could. So in the in-between of all this, we have a lot of fish out of water humor right out the get-go. Like, for example, even when Yuen Biao first saves Maggie Chung's character when he first sees her, when she's being forced to do her job by her pimp, played by Tai Po, uh, uh, and uh, some of his low lowlifes, you know, he, he rescues her using very traditional martial arts, all like pressure points, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. And then when she takes him home, it's a, a whole sequence of like, what is this? Electricity. What is this? That's a light. What is this? You know, the TV. There's little people in this box, you know, and we get a lot of that kind of humor, which is done well. And and Maggie Chung, once again, you watch watching the Cantonese version. I feel like it, it's done well. It's, you know, it's nothing that we haven't seen before, but uh, they pull it off. But then it's kind of like we just get a, a long lull of this almost where we... we there's one small little action sequence after that where pretty much she goes to try to apologize to like the big pimp boss and instead they don't have any of it. So then you and Bia has to rescue her. And then he has like a mini kind of fight scene uh, in the office. And, but really aside from that, I mean, it, there's a long space without any real proper action. There's a lot of kind of the overly fish out of water humor and really, this this love story that sort of develops later because Yuen Biao's character ends up inadvertently falling in love with her, but, you know, based off of his morals and values from his, you know, Ming Dynasty guard traditions, he would never be allowed to love such a low-class lady and stuff. And But it's never really reciprocated from her end. I mean, kind of in the end. It's just, it, it felt a little unbalanced. We, I think that's, I think that's basically... The fish out of water stuff. The first time I watched it, I was laughing hysterically. Yeah. You know, younger, younger adult. It's actually very funny. Yeah. Uh, this time around, it's actually still very funny. But it almost feels like uh, like you're watching SNL or Mad TV. These are sketches that, oh, it's like uh, the great sketch that Phil Hartman used to do, the caveman lawyer. Yeah. I'm right? just so, a caveman lawyer. What do I know about these things? So, it, but it's ju- it's just like that where it's a comedy sequence and it's great. And then maybe two weeks later, you might see that comedy a different that com- same kind of comedy in a different setting. So there's a lot of like sketch comedy within, and they work as sketch comedy. Right. But when the film, when I would say one third of the film or one fourth of the film becomes sketch comedy. But it's not a comedy film because there are some pretty heavy topics in here, particularly when we talk about the assaults. And we also have a tremendous villain. Yeah. I mean, you the would- way he plays, I mean, we've always, like, he's made my top 10 list of villains for his, his uh, Yunhua made it for his portrayal in uh, Dragons Forever. Of course, Eastern Condors, another phenomenal villainous take. In this one, he actually goes full sociopath. Right. Which is, he does a phenomenal job at it because at points he's even trying to fight his, that nature. And at points there, there, and this is, this is where I tend to really appreciate films with Yoon, Yoon Biao in them because they're even in films that are borderline as exploitive as this, at least in the topic manner, Yoon, Yoon Biao brings sort of humanity to his characters, whether it's through his way of being innocent or through his ways of like, uh, you know, reflecting on society. But Yun Hua also does that. 
uh, like the like the moment where he tells Yoon Bial to get on his knees, and he's like, "I don't get on my knees except for in front of my parents or His Majesty, but I will do it because I love this woman." So when he does that, there's a moment even where Yoon Yoon Wah takes a sort of a step back, and he's like, he, "I'm bored of the both of you, so I'm just going to let you be. But if I see either of you again, I'll kill you." And he walks away. Brilliant assessment, because in that sequence, he actually brings out the humanity of this sociopath. It's like yes. for a split second, he has real feelings. Yes, and so there that it's there. If we dissect scene by scene, there is something redemptive in each scene. There's either a great comedy moment, a great acting moment, or phenomenal action sequences. But it's just it's it's so disjointed that it's really hard to say is this a is this a moral tale of, of Chinese culture being reflected on Hong Kong or is it vice versa or is it like I said just pure exploitative fun? Yeah, and not to mention the ors or just great stylized directing from Clarence Fock. Now, there's definitely some derivative elements which we'll get to here shortly, but even still there's some sequences that just randomly are shot so well like yes. the one right before Maggie Chung ends up becoming uh, involved with Yuen Wah's character where she's in the bar and it's just, it's like done in slow motion and there's the it's, lights and uh, it, it almost feels like something Wong Kar Wai would have shot. Yes, and you're, then, you're so right. And it's just, it's kind of randomly thrown in there. You're like, well, this is really like slickly well-made. And even throughout the film, there's a lot of use of kind of what is, you know, could be dubbed like neo-noir lighting, right? Like Absolutely. Great, great lighting kind of. It, so it's a fantasy film, but throughout Clarence Falk is definitely uh, consciously drawing elements from the techno thriller genre and displaying those in he, this film. Like, and so we're talking techno thriller, specifically certain science fiction films that really utilize kind of the neo-noir element. In this case, I would say neo-noir lighting, but really the film that highly inspired this one that i was hinting at before with some of the derivative elements is highlander another film about mm -hmm. kind of ancient characters in modern times but they don't even try to hide some of it uh but russell mccallhey or however you pronounce his name the director of highlander you could tell they were highly influenced by that because there's certain shots that they literally that are beautifully done in this, but just straight up are copying the original well, there, Highlander there's, there's, film. There is even a sort of like a beheading with a yeah. sword. Yeah, but uh, no, you're you're spot on there. It the you know I, I, we've talked about this before how I don't like to compare a film to other films necessarily that are cross cultural so that our, our audience can understand it better. But this is one of those films that begs for that because it is it is similar to Highlander. It has elements. Mm -hmm. It also has elements of like that that thriller, the 10 to midnight thriller. I don't yeah. know if you've seen that with Charles Bronson, but there the there are aspects of Yoon Wah's character that are just like that sociopathic killer who can't help himself. And then of course you know, the first film I think about when it's a martial arts film and, and there's a beautiful neon lighting is the opening sequence of Force Vengeance, but uh -huh. it is that neo-noir lighting. It's just so well done. And I saw, so I, like, I earlier when I talked about maybe if there were a different director, the, the film would be a little more cohesive, mm -hmm. but would it look the way it looks? Would Yoon Wa look the way he looks? Would would Yoon Biao have like when he when when he comes back after he gives himself after he has the 
you know, there's a sequence where he has to drink poison and then he gives himself acupuncture to, you know, to kind of save himself. There's a moment where he comes back and he looks stronger and he's like, you know, coming up in front of the neon lighting. And it just, I don't know. There's just visually this, uh, we talked about this a few weeks, a few episodes ago as well. I think it was with, uh, uh, the Michelle Yeoh film where it's a Royal cinematographer. Warriors, yeah. Yes. A cinematographer as a director. There's a lot that Clarence Falk is doing that r- makes you, m- makes me wonder about his, his past as a visual artist because he's so just captures each scene. Yes. And that's then that, I think that also speaks to like, even though the film is like this and the tone is like this. Uh, and I, I guess I'm thinking all of our, people are listening watching us on youtube now why why i say like this i'm like they're ups and downs and it's not like linking up each scene in in and of itself works because of how beautifully they're shot and how well the scene itself is crafted and hong kong itself lends itself to being such a and that's one of the things that's always captivated me about hong kong before i ever traveled there and then with my many trips as i said i can just walk I can get off at a random station on the MTR and just walk around for an hour or two and just be mesmerized during the day before all the cool lighting. And then at night with just all the lighting and then you go to any rooftop bar and it's just amazing. Like every, the, just the, the lights in the city and everything. And so really you don't even have to be that talented to capture this fantastic visual element of it. But then if you are and you can capture it in a unique cinematic way, then awesome. More power to you. You have a great backdrop and the we should get to talking about the action mm-hmm. so really with the only aside from so during their first initial chase there's a horse chase as gavin said after he yuan biao's character drinks the poison yuan wall lets maggie chung go uh yuan biao then like gives himself acupuncture to stop the poison from killing him to chase Yuan Wah's character. He gets on a horse. They end up on a car, on a crane, uh, courtesy of Wang Jing, uh, a cameo from Wang Jing. <laughs> yes. uh, and so they fight. there's a small fight on top of a car above the ocean before UNBL falls down. Uh, and then there's the big finale. So really, we mentioned at the beginning their sword fight when they're still in the Ming Dynasty. And it's a big snowy landscape. And one thing I want to say about the set design of the whole Ming dynasty, very haunting, very beautiful, very. So for a lot of us Kung Fu movie fans, when it comes to any sort of ancient China setting this and that, we think Shaw Brothers. And my hat's off to Shaw Brothers. They had an incredible studio system in which we got hundreds and hundreds of movies, but a lot of these sets were reused. And they had that very artificial feel, especially with some of these remastered blue uh, Blu-rays, specifically, I think it's 10 Tigers of Kwang Tong when it's supposed to be an outdoor sequence and you could really see that the, the sky is just blue paint on the wall. Uh, but my point being is that a lot of these kind of Ming Dynasty or Qing Dynasty settings, it's very sometimes artificial looking or it's like, okay, we've seen this exact same set before. It's just dressed up differently and my hats off also to all the set designers and workers at shaw brothers because they'd have to turn these things around like crazy that being said in this film we get a very unique fantasy feel to the whole beginning of the film where it's set uh in the ming dynasty so uh and it kind of adds this as i said extra like haunting fantasy element 
uh, like really kind of almost like a horror movie, which accentuates the, the just the, the nastiness of Yuen Wah's evil sexual predator character. But it, it's just nice and refreshing to have this unique set design. But then uh, all the outdoor stuff, it's because it's supposed to be like snowy ancient China. And no, this was not filmed in China. At that time, we were already talking about this last week with Supercop. They were not like going over to shoot films in China. It was as I suspected at when watching, I'm like, this has got to be Korea. Sure enough, when you watch the behind the scenes interviews with both UNBL and UNWA, they confirm that. So not only was it Korea, it was like a very kind of isolated area. Uh, from what UNWA was saying is they had two options. There was the more civilized area where they could have shot, but that's where the, like the ski resort was. And there was just too many people and tourists around. So they had to go like the opposite direction where... They got hit with a snowstorm on one of their days, and it was so bad. The military actually had to come get them out, like with snow plows and stuff. It was like really bad accommodations, and it was just miserably cold. And UNBI was talking about because of their costumes and like the boots they were wearing, all the you know ice would soak through, and you know people were getting uh, hypothermia or whatever. And uh, what's it called when you get like your feet too cold and uh, frostbite? Frostbite. There we go. Uh, frostbite, and on top of that. Obviously, when you get a snowstorm, it delays shooting and they're in this like, you know, traditional outfits with big, heavy swords on snow and ice where they can barely stabilize. They would try to pat it down as much as they could. But you actually see that in the action because you see and you're like, oh, it's great. It's you and want to and be out. But at the same time, you're like, they look a little limited. They look a little like, why aren't they doing a kind of a tiny bit more as fantastic as it is? It's just me being overly critical. But then you hear these behind the scenes interviews and you see why oh so even that whole opening great sequence we have probably could have been more probably could have been longer probably could have been more extravagant but they were limited by the elements of the environment around them so i mean that's that segment uh we talked about the short little action sequence in the pimp's lair uh, or pimp's office i should say we have uh yuen wa you know taking out his uh boss in hong kong which is a and then same thing he takes out some other uh guys when he decides mm -hmm. to buy guns from them and not pay them or whatever and there's a beheading that you mentioned there's the short little scuffle on the car but then we well, get the, to the yes but that short little scuffle on the car oh, features great. one phenomenal yeah. stunt oh, oh there's there's a, a jump that they show three times i don't know who does the stunt i think it's you and i'd imagine it's you and Wa just from the body structure yes and the right way he jumps they didn't show his like face a, but it's like from so far right. away but yeah, I just wanted to I just wanted to like point that that sequence out because that is a pretty fantastic agreed. jump. And Yuen Wah's physique and uh anatomy, you could say, and build is used to great effect in this film, both in the sense of because he's he's very sinewy in real life, or at least in his prime. And that's why he ended up being a great double for Bruce Lee, because although he, you know, didn't lift weights and stuff, but probably in the same way, he just had this naturally very ripped physique. Whereas Yuen Biao was always in great shape, but not that jacked or ripped. Like I've you never, know, yeah, it, this is... Um, whereas Jackie was able to have the ripness and a little bit of size, Yuen Wah was more just the straight Sanui ripped. And there's even a whole sequence when he uh, is paying for Maggie Chung to be his prostitute and obviously plans to probably rape and kill her where he's just in like a, you know, Speedo type underwear. It, and she even like makes comments about his physique because he's just so like gnarly and sinewy and like and, and and that's why that's that that right there is the 10 to midnight reference because that's you know the killer in 10 to midnight 
removes everything and it's just fully exposed except for you know sort of the speedos depending on which version you watch but yeah his it, it's it's funny because we had talked about this before where the good guy i think richard norton once mentioned in western films the good guy always at one point in an action film has a shirt off yeah and in this one and i may have cut you off from what you're about to say they use his physique to be kind of very foreboding it's 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 very scary Agreed. And uh, that's pretty much very scary. At. But also yeah. within the action, like some of the poses, because you're talking about the stunt where he jumps off the car onto the boat. Even when he jumps, he doesn't just jump. He jumps in this very animalistic. Yeah. I think Stephen Dorff in Blade, when he jumps up in the oh, air yeah. in slow motion, it's the same sort of thing. It, even the way he poses, because he has these long limbs. And he, even like when we see him in Dragons Forever, he, the animal style poses work really well for him. He used mm-hmm. he utilized a lot of that weird gnarly behavior in eastern condors too so we get to the finale with uh yuen biao and yuen wa and just think highlander but with kick-ass like hong kong style choreography it's on a rooftop uh there's there's one sequence that i was mentioning in specific where uh they're that just directly references highlander where they're on the roof they're posing down next to each other, holding their sword. <laughs> and this is when the old Kai Tok airport was still in Hong Kong. And it's an amazing shot. It's at night, you see all the lights, they're standing there. And then a plane goes behind them like, and is landing. And that is directly from Highlander, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And, but so the, it, they have this fantastic sword battle on top of the roof that then goes back inside the museum. And then it, they pretty much finished with like it, it's a combination of sword and hand to hand now with, with, then, with a slight gun, with guns, a slight gun yeah. sequence in the middle that, exactly where it's now full sociopath laughing while he's shooting uh sequence which is amazing but then uh yeah i i've always i wanted to ask you questions about that final martial arts fight well, sequence because and- it is so distinct yes and this finale is worth the price of admission alone that's what i was hinting at the very beginning because of how distinct it is in this style we have it's it's done so the sword play and stuff it's done very traditionally and even their martial arts they're using it's almost like they've evolved to modern day practices and styles while still utilizing their traditional martial arts within the hand-to-hand combat because at the beginning when you and bl first arrives in modern day hong kong as i mentioned he does this very traditional style when he fights off uh tai po and the pimp and his henchmen where he's literally using like almost wudong sword finger techniques and hitting them in their nerves and you know literally freezing them like and by this point it's a much more uh kind of savage not quite the 80s kickboxing style they they're still doing very traditional type movements but a little more of that rhythm so we have fan a fantastic sword battle we have a crazy machine gun part to it and then it finishes with this really good unarmed combat sequence between the un wa character and the un biao character but it's interesting because as great as the sequence is there's also certain elements where you you see how as fantastic as a martial artist Yuen Wa is, he's nowhere near the kicker that Yuen Biao is. And Yuen Biao's kicking is on full display. There's a great slow motion spinning wheel kick. Nothing fancy about it. No jump. No, just 
it just shows how beautifully he can extend his legs and kick. I think a lot of that has to do with his training under Tan Tao Leong in the 70s, you know, one of the most famous cinematic kickers, Taekwondo champion, world champion master. And just having that extensive training in that, because even when you see Yuen Wa throw some of his kicks, you know, his legs a little bent in places and it's more, uh, and even it's kind of more of that traditional opera background of theirs. Mm -hmm. But this is when you think about Yuen Wa, even in some of his most classic villain roles, like Eastern Condors and Dragons Forever, this is really one of his biggest showcases as the lead villain one-on-one mano e mano fight scenes right so absolutely i think i i feel like there's this there's eastern condors and again the the one i mentioned earlier a kid from tibet right but this is i would say you know with eastern condors it was a very stylized like yeah. the claw mm-hmm. and it was so he wasn't doing you know he was there to play off of Yun Biao and then Samuel Hung. This is one where he has to carry it. He's yes. carrying it in the in a similar style and in I'm that just, street. Right. And I was just being like, once again, this is just me being like super critical of the slight nuances of his kicks. Otherwise, I mean, he's a phenomenal performer, right? As is Yun Biao. And uh, that's why we get this amazing final sequence between the two of them. And it's nice because unlike the broken nature of his villainous turns in Eastern Condors or Dragons Forever, where he fights a little and then, you know, backs off or fights a little bit more. Mm-hmm. He isn't really the main showcase. He has henchmen. In this one, it's just him. And he's evil. And Yuen Biao is good. We all know I love a good versus evil plot line. And we get this fantastic finale, which eventually finishes with Yuen Wa's character being killed. You and Biao taking them to the top of the Buddha with like the key or whatever. And Maggie Chung tries to show up and stop him from traveling back in time. But he travels back in time, brings Yuan Wa with him, succeeds in his mission. Cut forward to I forget how many more months later, Maggie Chung's like kept her promise to the Yuan Biao character and cleaned up her life. She now works at a 7-Eleven. Her old pimp and his thugs show up to try to, you know, get some cash out of her when suddenly they run away because they see a guy walking up. And it's Yuen Biao, but it's like a reincarnated Yuen Biao. And she mm-hmm. runs up and hugs him. And he's like, who are you? I don't know what's going on. And then the movie ends. Yeah. It's like it, the it's, last little kind of Hong Kong style gag. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the movie in a nutshell. Uh, there's probably a lot more we could talk about or break down, but we're reaching our hour mark here. So overall for me, I still give this film a solid B rating. And one day it might be a B minus. The other day it might be a B plus. The finale is incredible. Yuen Biao and Yuen Wa are both at peak physical abilities here. As I said, you know, the animalistic nature of Yuen Wa is fantastic. The athleticism of Yuen Biao and also Yuen Wa, but just specifically Yuen Biao and a lot of the acrobatics and kicking he gets to do, do is incredible. Uh, really, the action is captured very well. So, yeah, I mean... I suggest seeking this film out and watching it, but it's not one of those ones that you have to, you know what I mean? It's not like a top, you know, if I had the top 20 Hong Kong movies, you must see before you die. This one's not going to make it, but you would probably enjoy this one if you're a fan of the genre. Yeah. Or a fan of either. And I mean, uh, you know, I've sought out films by both of these performers uh, and I've always enjoyed them when, even when they're in, isolated from the 
their working crew. Uh, you know, whether it is one of Samuel, Jackie, Yoon, Yoonwa, Yoonbyao, Corey, Yoon, even when they're isolated, I still enjoy their films and their personal performances. So it's, it's really nice to get a chance to see them sort of shine together. Yeah. So uh, for the language corner today, to wrap this up, uh, I figured I'd teach us something very, very easy. And that's the word for ice, which is just, uh, hence the ice man cometh, which is bing. Bing. Yep. B-I-N-G. High tone. Bing. Bing. Yep. So you can add that to uh, certain things to, uh, you know, for example, bing kwai is ice cube. Nice. So, bing kwai. I want to add ice cubes. Now, remember, the, the thing is, in China, it's a little bit different, especially in the South, in Guangzhou. They believe that cold drinks are not good for you. So a lot of the times, it's hard to get really cold drinks, even on a very hot, hot Guangzhou day. Shanghai, I didn't have as much uh, issues with this, but in Guangzhou, it was in the terms of getting like ice cold drinks. But I, maybe it's more of a, a Southern tradition. But I think it's pretty universal. Oh, I shouldn't say universal, but throughout China where, you know, they, they don't like cold drinks. And there is truth to that. Obviously, you're supposed to drink things more at room temperature, even when like you're really hot. Room temperature is supposed to be better for you. But in Guangzhou, they take it to a whole nother level and they serve everything boiling hot. That's their thing. It's like, <laughs> oh, you know, if it's the hot summertime and you're very hot, you must drink this boiling hot tea to cool you off. And if it's yes. the winter and it's freezing cold, you must drink this boiling hot tea to warm you up. And yes. I'm like, huh? But <laughs> I, I bring this up because I have two funny stories. First one was being in Guangzhou. And we went to uh, get some like uh, kind of uh, boba tea type stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a, t a tea place. And it was so hot. And I just wanted, a I knew I wasn't gonna get an ice cold tea drink, but I wanted something kind of cold. So, you know, I, I picked my drink. And at this time, I, you know, my level of Chinese is very limited. But I, you know, I tell them, bing de. so bing de, de as in like of so literally just bing da would mean like cold version. And they say, okay. And so they poured the boiling hot tea out of the machine, grab a scoop of ice, put it in there, then put the seal on it and then hand it to me. And I just grab it and I'm like, thanks. Because I knew that was the best I was going to get, right? Uh -huh. uh, if you went to more of uh, like when I was in Shanghai and you'd go to the, oh, I can't even think of the name of it now. And they're here in America. Some of those, uh, the milk tea places, the really sugary version. It's not, is it cocoa maybe? There I was able to get like cold milk tea. But this particular instance in Guangzhou, that happened. Second one, I'm in a KTV in China, uh, kind of second tier city in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, so for people who don't know, KTVs are like karaoke bars. And, uh, you know, you typically you'll rent a room with your friends and they have them here too. Like we've been to one in Vegas that we love going to, but you rent a room with your friends. Usually it's kind of an upfront fee and you get like unlimited snacks and a certain amount of drinks. Usually it depends on which like kind of package you buy. And so, you know, they, they bring out the beer and it's room temperature. It's warm. And my Chinese is a little bit better at this point. And, you know, I, I tell them, I, I, I say, oh, 我要喝瓶, uh, you know, I want to drink beer. Don't sure, you know, 我要冰的. I want cold. And, uh, and they're like, oh, you want cold? And I was like, 对,一瓶啤酒,我要冰的啤酒,啤酒, uh, you know, beer. I want cold beer. Uh, and so they say, oh, okay. And they leave and they come back and they bring the exact same beer 
with cups of ice. <laughs> and so I, and I, I look up at him and I said, I, I said, well, you know, I want cold beer. And they're like, dai, dai, this is a I'm like, Bushu, this is being quiet. I was like, no, this is ice cubes. Bushu, Bingda, Pijo. It's not cold beer. Uh-huh. And they're just kind of, they just, the concept, and I was just like, never mind. And that was the one time in my life I was drinking beer on ice in a cup. Nice. Yeah. Classy. And don't get me wrong, I love Chinese beer. I love a good Qingdao. Uh, but yep, so that's my, my little story about uh, Bingda. Bing, bing, bing. Ice. Yep. PGO. PGO is a, is a good one for uh, people too. Okay. That wraps it up. This has been fun, my friend. Likewise. Peace. I'll see you around.